0: So I took the job. How and, long
1: did you actually have to think about it?
0: You know, not very long. Okay. It was it was within the conversation. Okay. It was like I didn't let him yet. I didn't let him hang up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so that show went on to be what we all know today as American Idol. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions the truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts.
1: Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have with us Ron Deshay, the CEO, President, and Founder of World of Dreams. Thank you so much for joining me, Ron.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. It's, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, it's so great <laughs> to be in the same room as you here in Texas.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: you know, we've obviously spent most of our time together at Harvard. And, yes. Um, so it's fun to <laughs> reconnect. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot about World of Dreams today, but I think what you're most, you know famous for, I guess, is, um, you know, your decades, uh, (laughs) multiple years and years and years um, producing American Idol. Yes. Uh, But, you know, you're from Texas.
0: Yes, I am. I I grew up in Texas. Actually, I grew up in a small town called Bastrop, Texas, just 30 miles southeast of Austin. That's where I grew up. And uh, that's where my roots are. My roots are here in Texas, so…
1: Well, and you know, so from Texas, yes. right? And you went to university somewhere here in Texas yeah. and uh, ended up at grad school, right? Yes. And, you know, but how did you end up in Hollywood?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. Well, it started out, I was doing uh, some, some graduate work at Clark Atlanta University. And I was already, I grew up, I was all sort of a ham. I mean, I grew up in doing theater. I grew up singing. And so I always sort of knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment space. But when I got to grad school, I actually became the news anchor at Clark Atlanta University. And that was really sort of my first sort of taste of being in production of learning that space and knowing what it feels like to actually have to have production meetings and getting set up and learning about lighting and actually producing stories and coming up with stories, telling stories that are engaging and that are informative. So that was where I really got the bug for it. And then after graduating, I moved back to Texas, but really just decided that after trying to teach for two years, that that wasn't for me. And that if I was going to give this whole thing in entertainment a shot, I needed to do it while I was young. So long story short, I loaded up everything that I had in a U-Haul and made (laughs) the trip across country. And two hours into me going to discover my great dream, the Ford Explorer broke down. And (laughs) that that was sort of the beginning of the journey. It it was supposed to be a three-day trip the way it was mapped out. It ended up being nine days. As I was approaching Palm Springs, the Ford Explorer, after being patched up uh, by some mechanic I found on the side of the road, literally uh, 100 miles away from Los Angeles, the Ford Explorer broke down (laughs) again and basically said, I'm taking you as far as I'm taking you. So, you know, I call AAA, AAA arrives and they find that with my Explorer and U-Haul there's no way that they could legally do it. So what they did was they put the Ford Explorer on the bed of the tow truck and then put the U-Haul on the hitch of the truck. Completely illegal. (laughs) But that's what they did. And that is how I arrived in L.A., to go and find my dream (laughs) working in the (laughs) entertainment industry. So
1: It is funny. I had an explorer in college. Yeah. You know, they always call it the Ford Exploder. (laughs) And uh, I don't have any great stories like that. But, you know, sorry to the people at Ford. Exactly. Uh, But But you made it.
0: Yes, I made it. You made it. I made it. So you're there. Yes, I'm there. I get there. And, you know, I, I immediately hit the ground running. I started out, I got myself an agent and I I started out actually in front of the camera and it was working out really well for me. I was getting little bit roles here and there and different things. I got a few commercial spots. I actually got a role as a day player on Pamela Anderson show VIP, I don't know if you remember that. You may be a little young for it, but <laughs> we tried to
1: Google it. Too. No, gosh, <laughs> we did not. We were unable no. to find anything. But, um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. We went deep.
0: <laughs> well, I was a little bit more muscular back then, so <laughs> they had me behind the bar in a muscle shirt, mixing drinks and whatnot, and it was it was a really a good entrance for me into the entertainment industry. But I really, there was something still a little bit unfulfilled in me. And I wanted to be behind the scenes. And uh, 9-11 happened. And I don't know if you remember, but everything shut down in Hollywood when 9-11 happened. We went on what was supposed to be a temporary hiatus. And Pamela decided she didn't want to come back anymore. So that was actually the end of the series at that point. A friend of mine, after, you know, sitting out for about six months or so, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, look, I know you want to get behind the scenes. I have a friend. There's an entry level position to another show. It's yours if you want it. And um, I'm not making any money at this time. So I I really don't have a lot of choices, but I take it. I ended up taking the, the position and it was a position on a show called American Fighter Pilots. And I was a logger. Oh, and no. if,
1: <laughs> oh, so it wasn't on the show on <laughs> no, the show. No, it was it not. Was, it was on the other side of the camera. It was on the production <laughs> side. It was on the production side, which
0: is actually what I wanted. Okay. I wanted to be on the production side, but I was a logger and it was the bottom of the barrel, if you will. It's the person or the people who sit and look at footage and they write in the time code. They put little messages attached to clips so the producers and the editors can find it when they need to put things together. So I did that. And really interesting what happened on the first day that I was there, uh, the executive producer actually came in and sat down and talked with me. And we talked for about an hour on the first day. And strangely enough, he came back the second day. And much the same, we had this extensive dialogue between us. And he he basically said, hey, you're a smart guy. And I want to make you the head logger. I want to make you the liaison between the producers and the editors. And uh, basically, you become the source of information for this room. And I thought, that's fantastic. So he comes back day three, comes back day four. And then on that Friday, he pulls me aside and he says, I don't know what it is about you. I can't shake you. He says, I'm going to do something very unorthodox. And I'm going to ask you to be one of my associate producers. <laughs> And
1: Fastest I mean, promotion ever.
0: In the history of ever. But I'm going to tell you, I didn't know a lot about what that even meant. But I was excited. And I knew I got paid. <laughs> it sounded like a step up. <laughs> it was a step up. <laughs> and I got a little bit more money, which is right? also okay. good. And then we make it to air. But it was really interesting because that show taught me so much about the foundations of creating content and how to tell a story. I learned so much from that show. And I'll never, ever forget that experience. It was a great experience that was short-lived because when we went to air, we only lasted three weeks before being canceled. And (laughs) it's (laughs) a doggy dog dog world out there. It is, it is indeed, you know. So I'm home and uh, a few weeks after that, after the show's canceled, and I get a call from the same executive producer and he goes, hey, look, I got a show coming over here from the UK. My team loves you. I love you. Would you like to be a part of that team, part of this production team? And I said, "Let me think about it." Okay, you know, it's not like I had anything else to do, so I took the job. How long did you actually have
1: to think about
0: it? You know, not very long. It was, it was within the conversation. I didn't let him. I didn't let him hang up. (laughs) So that show went on to be what we all know today as American Idol. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's how that happened. <laughs> that's
1: great, and you know, so American Idol it, it was uh, a hit in the UK, from my understanding. Yes, exactly. However, you know, it was a uh, you know like anything that you try and translate cultures and uh, bring something to another country. There's differences, yeah. and so you know, you're all of a sudden like on <laughs> the set, right? And you know, your role was the associate producer again. in the beginning. That's okay. how it
0: started up. Yeah. Yeah. So, fill me in. Well, it's really interesting because there's this whole pre-production phase that goes into making a project. And that, there's so much involved in that whole process. It's about finding the talent that will be a part of it. The, The only thing that was set in stone with American Idol was that the executive producers from the UK came with the show, and Simon Cowell came with the show, but everyone else had to be filled in on the American side. So, I find myself doing interviews and, and auditions for the likes of Ryan Seacrest and for those who are familiar in the early days. <laughs>
1: Wait, was Nigel there too?
0: <laughs> well, not during that portion oh, of no, it. He no, was no, He Nigel. had not made it over okay. yet. He hadn't made it over <laughs> yet. So, he was just looking at tape at that point. But Brian Dunkelman, remember it was two in the beginning. It wasn't just Seacrest; it was Ryan Seacrest and Brian Dunkelman. Okay. And so I remember the, the the cast of people that we saw. And at that time, I think probably the biggest thing that Ryan had done was uh, some version of, like of American Gladiators or something like that. And we were watching tape of him on that and the radio thing. He was already doing that. Um, had the the, the pleasure of of meeting people like Paul Abdul and and Randy Jackson. And it's really, really, it was such a cool thing. I mean, but at that time, you know, we had no idea. I mean, we thought that the show was going to be somewhat successful. But, I mean, we actually had people turning us down. It's crazy to think. I mean, (laughs) we actually approached other celebrities. And some of the celebrities passed us by. I won't mention because many of them say it's the biggest mistake they ever made. So I won't embarrass them. (laughs) Are we talking about We're talking about some (laughs) A-listers who passed it up. Yeah. And actually say today they jokingly say it's the biggest mistake they ever made was passing up that opportunity, so but it was such an involved process. We had to rethink the way that the show was portrayed in the UK version they had this little chicken this baby chicken that would come out in between segments and flash <laughs> messages across the screen <laughs> and and we would look at things like that and we were like that's never going to work here not you know <laughs> <gonna fly. laughs> not going to fly not going <laughs> to fly so we had to make those sort of adjustments to make it fit sort of american sensibilities but for me it was just a really a, another great opportunity of growth for me but i learned how to produce literally from a to z from doing American Idol, so.
1: Yeah, I know. That's really cool. And, you know, y- you've told me this story before. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Because I, I come from recruitment, technology, sales, go to market. Yeah. And the behind the scenes for the entertainment world is never really anything that, you know, you kind of turn on the TV or movie and you go and, it, you know, it's in, whatever, you go to Universal Studios. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not the same. Yeah. So, there's the, the process involved. And, you know, I think that in sales and everything that, you know, that we do, there's very much a process. And it was fascinating to me when you told me about the editing yeah. process yeah. and, you know, uh, how that...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going. Yes. Well, it was really interesting because as, you know, as I was talking about the different sensibilities from the UK to the US, basically, it was, it was those, in those early days, it was a melding of two worlds because you have the executive producers coming over from the UK, you had your American executive producers, you had your American team of producers, and you're trying to sort of meld these two worlds together. And it was not an easy task. And I'll tell you, something very strange happened during that first season. My senior producer, who was over me, ended up leaving the show. So during the time, we had already gone out on the road, we'd already done those first rounds of auditions. And when you come back, you have to sit down. Producers have to sit down, decide which cities they're going to take, which stories they're going to develop, all these different things. And I ended up having to take my senior producer's responsibility because he was no longer there. So if you can imagine (laughs) this new team of producers trying to produce this new concept with these already established UK executives coming in, you know, thinking, (laughs) you know, the show is going to be what they want it to be. So... I'm new. This is literally my first time actually not sitting in an edit, but being responsible for what comes out of an edit. And it was really interesting because I remember the panic that was going on when when, when Nigel Lithgow and Ken Warwick, when they made it over from the UK to the US. And we're all in our edit base, producers and editors, trying to get our stories together, trying to get our shows lined up. And after you go through that process, then there's a screening process with the executives. And, um, and usually screening days, you know, they're pretty exciting. Most people are happy to show off what they've done. And on our first screening, I'll never forget this day, and they started out with our senior producers, our lead producers, because, of course, they're the most senior in the business and they have the best sensibilities towards telling stories and things of that nature. And I'll never forget, I won't say any names. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that, but I'll never forget I remember the Nigel Ken, the UK execs going in with the American execs to screen the first producer shows and I heard yelling. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like five edit bays down. I'm like the last edit bay and I'm, I hear yelling coming out of the room and I'm like, oh my God. like, what is going on? And I'm like this new kid, this young kid who never screened a thing in his life. Then they go to the next one and you could tell there's some disagreements about you know, the style and different things that were done. And they continue this process. And while they're in like, I think it was the third edit, um, my supervising producer runs in my edit with my with my editor and i and asks, hey, how do you guys think your stuff is? And, I, and I, I'm like, well, we think it's good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> don't seem to like anything yeah, here. Exactly, so. like we think it's good. <laughs> and and he asked, so, "Well, are you guys ready to show today? And I was like, we think we are. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those situations. He goes, well, we're going to bring them in um, after this next room. So just, you know, tee up whatever, you know, your best city is and, and we'll go from there. And I'll never forget this day, um, this moment, Nigel and Ken walk in along with the American execs and they start watching and they laugh when they're supposed to laugh. And they're looking and there's a pleasant sort of feel in the room, but not really giving you really any indication as to what, you know, what they're really thinking or feeling. No yelling. No, (laughs) no yelling. But there was no yelling. And at the end of the screening, they look at the American execs and say, this is what we want. And they walk out of the room and my supervising producer turns around as they're leaving. He goes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, was that in he your said, mind Thank you. yeah. Like, was that your like, I don't know at the time if yeah. you're like, I just made it. Yeah. Or if yeah. like in hindsight, that was yeah. like the moment where it went, I, you know. Was, it was. I mean, yeah. It
0: was a defining moment for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, It was a defining moment for me because that was literally my first time putting together content that was going to be viewed by people. And for whatever reason, it just came natural to me. Like, I didn't have to think really hard. I went with what felt right. And it's so funny. I look at that. I look at how I've become a producer over all these years. There's always been something in me that knows if something is going to appeal to the audience or, and I don't stop or I'm not comfortable until I get that feeling. And yeah. I use that sort of as my measuring stick today, but that was a defining moment for me. It definitely was. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's, you, you mentioned um, that you knew in your gut. Yeah. If something was appealing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And which is interesting because, you know, I think about it and what you like, I might not. Like. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, Whatever, lots of people out there, yeah. and, and people have different preferences and, yeah. and everything, and so. But you knew, I mean, the the American Idol is very much a mainstream yeah. show, right? It really yeah. was something multi generational yeah. that you know my grandma could watch, and my you know five year old cousin could watch at the same time, yeah. and everybody really, you know. Liked it, and even if you didn't like it, you could still appreciate yeah. it for the value that it, it that it brought, and then yes. the joy, and and just you know, I think the stories of watching these people, you know, from audition to you know now, tons of them are, I mean, not tons, but a lot of people that we all know today as like yes. household names yes. started at American Idol. So you know what I thought was really interesting about this was your confidence in knowing that you were producing something that people would like. And you did something that nobody had ever done before. And, uh, you know, I find it fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, the idea of telling stories. You know, when you're telling stories, you know, it's funny as a producer, you sort of have to remove yourself as being the lone audience member of what you're doing. And there's a realization that comes the more you do it, that you're doing this and you're creating this for sort of the masses, if you will. I think what made American Idol successful and what was so beautiful about the storytelling that we did on that show is that you had a little bit of everything. And it's really about the journey and where you create uh, moments of sheer happiness And people can relate to that. And you create these moments of reality where these, where the audience can relate to the people that they're sitting there and they're watching. And it's, it's about choosing sort of the variety of people that represent the masses that are out there. And if you're able to, hone in on those points of identification of where, oh my gosh, I can totally relate to that. And then another person can see someone completely different and they're like, oh my gosh, I completely get that. You start building sort of these points of connection just through their stories. And that's the secret of American Idol. I don't think people even realize it because of the whole picture of what you got, but really it was the stories that pulled people in. And then once you were pulled in by their stories, then you become the fans. Then you want to vote for them. Then you want to root for them. Then you want them to win. And that was sort of the thing. And then you get a little bit of everything because they're the moments where you don't expect it, where the people would come in and you would think, oh my gosh, they're going to be fantastic. And they were completely horrible. And, then, <laughs> and, you know, and, and just the brilliance of Simon Cowell in those early days of, of what he created in that character of just being real, you know, and being the one who would just tell the truth just unashamedly and unabashedly just tell the the, the truth and the appeal of Paula, who was the cheerleader for everyone, who was everyone and sort of the mother figure, you know, and then Randy Jackson, who brings the whole industry experience. So it was something for everyone. And I think all of these different things working together, I think that is what just made the show so overall appealing to everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I guess I never really thought of. I mean, Simon, you know, as the producer, right? When you're backstage and or yeah. whatever, and I, yeah, you know, and uh, like he, uh, because wait, it was live, right? Or was it? Well, the live? show,
0: and that this is the beauty of the show as well, and this is why I think I think people stayed with it because the show changed context. Yeah, it started out on the road, where it's yeah. this whole road show talent show kind of thing. Then it goes to Hollywood. And then it, it becomes, it feels oh, very different. Then, then, okay. then, and then it moves to the, the the live stage. So it's a journey even for the viewers. So you don't get bored with the format because the format keeps changing. It keeps evolving. And in each evolution of the process, it's a different experience for the viewer. Right. You know? Yeah.
1: Right. And the fewer and fewer people left. And yeah. then you get more passionate Absolutely. about people along the way. And, yeah. and people continue. So, you know, the voting, I always found to be so, interesting right because you know you get people watching and, and I think TiVo and all that or you know DVR came out during during that time during the time yeah. Yeah. where you already had a sticky audience right that wanted to watch it during the time yeah now how did you like where where did that you know that was the first time anyone ever had a voting yeah. Yeah. was it I, I for my record that was
0: that was the first time the people had ever been given the power to make those decisions there were shows who had similar formats that preceded Idol, but none of those shows actually put the power of making those decisions in the hands of the people. And I think one article said it best. Um, American Idol is the show that broke television. And it, it <laughs> talked about the simple innovation of giving people that power to make that decision. The people choose. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and it makes you feel empowered as you're watching it, right? And and like even though your
0: vote
1: yeah. is I guess it's kinda idea. like, you know, in the US. You that's
0: just the idea. Well imagine and, that. Imagine. I mean, and, and jokingly, I mean, we used to joke about, you know, more people voted on American Idol than they do for the presidential elections. <laughs> we we joked about is that, that all the time. It's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Oh, it my God. Absolutely true. <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> I mean, I remember my mom would have like her pad of paper out and like, yeah. take her notes and like she like thought she was Paula there, yeah. you know, like making yep, the comments. Yep. And you know, I'm sure um, <laughs> other people listening to this are like, oh, yeah, uh, like people took it super seriously <laughs> yeah. and like wrote down all their thoughts and then placed their vote. And, yeah. um, you know, it really gets, it really gets people sticky. And so, yeah. You know, I just, I think, you know, when I met you at Harvard, yeah. And yeah. I still remember the first day or something, like very early on, you know, and I don't know, I'm brand new here. Like, yeah. I heard from a friend, like, apply for this, it'll help you with your business. And yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea what I was entering into. Yeah. And, you know, you and a lot of the other high profile people there, but you in particular, because, you know, mm-hmm. Linda... Lyndall Applegate, who's yep. a you know professor at Harvard yeah. uh, OPM HBS, uh, and she's like, yeah, you know, you're on, you're from American Idol, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, you know, there's somebody from I American Idol. That. I'm pretty sure American Idol was still on the air. Yeah, it's still and- on today. It's <laughs>
0: okay. just a different network now, and <laughs> okay. I'm no longer with it, but right. it's still exactly. on. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I was just like, why would this guy <laughs> leave American Idol? Like, literally, yeah. this is like me. We hadn't even met yet. Yeah. And I'm just thinking in my head and, you yeah. know, whatever. Eventually, we got to meet. Um, but, you know, you, I mean, you had such a huge run there. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are like, you know, why would you? And, you know, I think a lot of people in careers and a lot of stuff that we do at BETS, yeah. Like, you know, people have these amazing runs. And the big question people say is, why would you ever leave?
0: Yeah. Why would you leave the number one television show in America? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. But you know, it's funny. The way I, I was with the show for so long and, you know, there were still things in me that I felt like I was supposed to do or that I needed to do. And I sort of, the way I'm wired, um, like that feeling doesn't go away. You know, and and once you sort of, I feel like when I've learned Pretty much everything that I'm supposed to learn in this space, I'm going to have to move on. And I think part of that also is because of the entrepreneur that was in me at the time was like fighting and screaming, trying to get out. And it's so funny, but I'll never forget when I made that decision. It was a really crazy time because at that time, I was also being approached by The Voice to go to The Voice and to you know, co-EP that show. And so it was a big decision. And I had, strangely enough, I had started working on my business plan to start my own company, to start my own production company. And so loosely just working on this thing and and then having sort of this pressure of renewing my contract with Idol and then having my agents, you know, kind of pressuring me on that and pressuring me on this offer from The Voice. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing here? Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And it was, I mean, now I look back and I'm like, that was really not that big of a decision. But then to me, it was everything. Okay. And I'll never forget, I i don't even know how, but somehow my business plan got into the hands of uh, Carlos Slim Jr. Um, and he's a media mogul down in, in, in Mexico for those who don't know. And I get a call out of the blue <laughs> one day asking uh, would I be willing to come down to Mexico to talk to him about this. And I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. And the day that I was leaving, I was being hounded by my agent on both of the offers outstanding from Idol and from The Voice. And um, I'll never forget getting on the plane, getting ready to get on the plane. I basically said, look, I'm going to decline both offers. I don't know what made me do that. Yeah. But I declined both offers and I got on the plane and I flew to Mexico. I had that meeting and five minutes into that meeting, I had the funding for my company.
1: So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like you didn't have, you could have waited till you had yes, the funding. I could right? have. Right? Like you could have just.
0: I could like, have. But it, I felt like they were pressuring me. Like I felt like they needed an answer. Yes. No. What are you gonna do? I mean, that's I don't when it when you start getting down to the wire, it's time to go back out on the road. The pressure about making those decisions really they really do start putting the pressure on you. Right. And I didn't wanna, you know, put them in a situation of where they're thinking that I'm gonna come back and then I don't come back and then they're shorthanded or they haven't found had the time to replace. So I took all of those things into consideration. I'm processing a lot. Yeah. But I don't know there was something I had just Again, this, and I, in my gut, I knew my time was over. My time there was done. And for me to go to The Voice would literally be putting myself back in a very, very familiar environment to sort of do the same thing that I had just done. And for whatever reason, I couldn't do that. I took this step into becoming an entrepreneur. And it was the beginning of a, a whole new learning experience for me. And I don't regret it. <laughs> but it was a whole new way of, of being, living, and learning because, man, we talked about this before. I made some huge mistakes, you know, in those early days of trying to figure out how to run my own business. But I think if I, if I would say to anyone who was sort of thinking about, you know, what it's like to sort of start your own business, you know, I would say, don't be afraid to do it, but be present in everything that you do so that you're learning from it even the mistakes. It's like life. Especially the mistakes. Especially the mistakes. But I think a lot of times people think about mistakes and they equate it to failure and it's like, and then all be all sort of thing. It's sort of like life. You live, you make mistakes, but the mistake doesn't mean your life is over. It means that you you learn from it, you get back up, and you do it over and you do it better the next time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so true. And, I definitely think you learn a whole lot more from your failures than yeah. your successes. Yeah, And yeah, 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 I, yeah, it's really interesting.
0: We get hung up on the term mistakes and we get hung up on the term failure.
1: Right.
0: And again, we make it, it's in our minds, it becomes sort of this definitive thing as opposed to a thing that you just learn from. And I think you hear me talk about perspective all the time. Like oh, that's absolutely. my big thing. Right. Perspective is everything, you know? and. If you go back to Idol, some of my think one of the biggest lessons I learned on Idol is perspectives because I would always be given the shows that no one else wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> like you go, you go to these incredible auditions and you go to these great cities, and I mean, some cities would just be incredible, and you'd have great auditions, and you'd have you know great energy from the judges, and you have incredible things, sights to see, and and the people are just lively and they're fun, and then there are those cities where the judges are in a bad mood and the the singers aren't that great. You don't get that many people making it through to Hollywood. You know, the weather is terrible and all these different things. And then when you get back, someone has to sit and put all of these things together. And strangely enough, I would always be given, you know, those cities that just were not good. But the crazy thing about it is, you know, whenever we're getting ready to premiere a new show or a new season, it's, the network always wants to lead with the best show. Because you want, that's how you start out. You start out with the very best. Right. And the crazy thing about that is that regardless of whatever show I was given, and usually it, it were the ones, it was the ones that was just not great. It would always be rivaling to be aired first. And because I learned how to see something and find the absolute best in it, and bring it out. And that was a great exercise for me because I've now taken that even with business and, and, and being an entrepreneur, it's important to be able to do that. You have to be able to look at the bad situations and figure out how to turn those things to make it work better and benefit your company, you know? So perspective.
1: You know, it's really interesting. Yeah. And I've been uh, known to say, uh, you never want to be good at a bad job. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the the funny thing is, if you are good at a bad job, it opens doors, right? Because if you can turn something amazing… From something that just, you know, and and I think about, you know, talent out there on the market. And you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, you know, diversity and privilege and what that looks like and the level of opportunities. And so I think that, you know, people out there that can see an opportunity where other people might not or see something special in something You know, it's a lot easier than like, okay, yeah, obviously this person's a phenomenal singer. You know, it's obvious, right? And I I don't know. I didn't see the raw footage from any of this (laughs) stuff. But I imagine that was what it was, was you saw something that other people didn't see because you looked for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think that's that's an interesting perspective. So…
0: That's the story of my life, I think. (laughs) I think it is. I think it's the story of my life. And, you know, I can… Talk a little about even even with what happened this whole year with this the pandemic that we're now in right now. I mean, it has been you know overwhelmingly uh, a shift in every sense of the word, and for businesses, you know, figuring out how to navigate the instability that we were all sort of forced into <laughs> was, I mean, it was crazy. And it's so funny. Um, and I we talked a little bit about the last time when we spoke. But you know, right now Harvard Business Schools, they're currently doing a case study on me. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is that they're focusing on that part of our business, how we were able to pivot and actually help other companies during this time because of the perspective that we kept and held. During this whole transition, I mean we were able to take some of the things that we developed and use them to help other companies sort of move and thrive through this space and If we had not sort of kept a good perspective about it, we could have easily been uh, a company that didn't survive you know this situation. but I think perspective is everything when you look and you see the disruption that comes to your business i it's so funny i don't know what it is about the term disruption or i sort of thrive in those situations. And it's like, I find ways to connect those gaps. And usually that's what a disruption is. The disruption is this chasm that has been created by something that has happened. And I literally simplify it to the point that if I can find a way to connect these two things, then that becomes a bridge that brings people to a connecting point. And we, we like to talk about, we like to use the term innovation. Innovation does not have to be this juggernaut of an idea. Sometimes the simplicity of just figuring out of how to connect one dot to the next could be the simple innovation that's needed to move a business out of the place of being disrupted to being in a place of being innovative and 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 moving forward in innovation. So,
1: right, and be you know from disrupted to disruptive,
0: absolutely, absolutely, and, uh, absolutely.
1: So, world of dreams. Yes. Right, my baby. Right. I mean, it, well, and it's funny because you said, "Oh, you could have gone out of business." I'm like, "You've raised so much money for that; you're not going anywhere." And I, you know, I actually think the timing worked out well, right? And yeah. you know, it's interesting, right? Because this idea—I believe that you had it before Harvard, or was it developed at Harvard? Like, when exactly did you come up with the idea? Yeah. and then you know, we can also talk about this was the big. Year.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really, that's yeah. a great question for me. I actually made the decision after looking at what was happening in the entertainment industry for a very long time. And after starting my production company, seeing the decline that was taking place in viewership and understanding the demographics, millennials, Gen Z, who were sort of missing from that space of entertainment. And everyone was sort of trying to figure out why are we still having this slow decline? Why is this happening year after year? The decline gets larger and larger because the normal trend is as older generations die off, the younger generations come in to fill those viewer demographics. And that just wasn't happening. But The more and more I studied it, the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I saw our industry wasn't doing anything about it. You had your Netflix coming onto the scene. You had your Amazons coming onto the scene. And it's like television is just sitting back going, oh, well, oh, oh, well. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, these guys are kicking your butts and you're not doing anything. And, you know, it's so funny. At the time that I was accepted into the program at Harvard, I was just making the decision to transition my company from a production company to a platform, to an SVOD or an OTT platform and a television network. We were making that decision. And so I think being accepted into that program, uh, OPM, was, I don't know how do you want to whether it was fate, whether it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Because right at the time when I needed to know how to make that transition and then the tools that were needed to make that transition, they were all given to me in that program. And you guys joking, you joke with me all the time, and you call me the poster child for this for, for OPM. <laughs> I mean, that, look at your right now. But you know what's funny? I mean, I was like a sponge, like I absorbed everything. I will never, fr- I mean, every class session that we would have, I'd go back. And I would sit and look at what I learned. I'm like, how can I apply this to what I'm doing right now? How can I how can I make this go? And I would send messages back to my team. And like, this is what I learned today. We need to really think about implementing this. We really need to think about... They
1: tell you not to do that. I
0: know. But he- <laughs> the thing is, we were in a transition already. Right. So the timing of it, and the- my team was ready for it, you know, because we knew we had to make this big crossover. So it was really interesting because we were already sort of in that place. So we're all trying to figure out what the heck are we doing? And then I could give some downloads from what I'm learning, like, that's a great idea, you know? So it was sort of kind of like that The timing was really, really, really great. And I mean, and I would have meetings with our professors afterwards. I'm like, can I have a meeting with you? Uh, Can I have a meeting with you? I really would like to talk with you a little bit more. I would bring my business plan into them. And I'd say, take a look at this. Give me your thoughts. What do you think on this? And have you considered this? And have you thought about this? And we mentioned Linda Applegate earlier. Like she, I'm going to tell you that lady, she grabbed a hold of this whole idea that I had and she became, I guess, she championed me because she was like Ron. She's like, "This is a great idea."
1: Yeah.
0: And she would not leave it, like you know. And she's like, make sure you let me know what what updates. Let me know what what's going on. Let me know this and let me know that. And and I would I would keep her abreast of what was going on. And I would I would have sessions with her. And she was like, "Well, have you considered this? Or have you thought about this? You really don't need to do that." You know. <laughs> and I just love I love like their frankness and their honesty about about literally poking holes in your business plan and your strategy. I think that's one thing that helped me so much because we, we talked a little bit at one point about, you know, if we we're going to give someone advice about going into business, what, what would you tell them? You know, <laughs> starting
1: your own company. <laughs> starting your own company,
0: you know, other than don't do it. No, no, <laughs> no, no right? definitely. No, you should definitely do it. And I think the things that I said was, don't be afraid of making mistakes. But the other thing is making sure that you have tested your strategy, that you've poked holes in it frontwards, backwards, sideways, and every other way, which you can. Because the thing that I really took away from that program and learning even from you guys, my colleagues, is that literally if you have a strategy that is developed, that means that you thought of all the different ways that your business will fail or not, not make it. And then you can put in systems. You can put things in place that can actually guard against those things happening. You can have a plan B or you can have a plan C or you can figure out ways of making a project be more successful. And I think that is the thing that I would tell people. If you're starting a business and, and, and understanding that with, especially with the time like we're in right now, your company has to be agile. Oh, it you. has to be agile. You have to be able to change on a dime and you have to have that flexibility, you know, in the way your company is structured in the way that it's set up, the risk mitigation factors placed within it so that you can do the things that you need to do in order to make your company successful. I think back. Um, I think back to when I first started out and I'm like, oh my God, I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing. What? was I thinking? What was I doing? When I compare to the knowledge, the information that I have now, it's just being in that program. It literally changed my life. It changed the way I saw the world of business. It changed how I do business now. And it's given me the tools to do business at a level that I never dreamed of doing it before.
1: It's been powerful for yeah. a lot of people that, that went to OPM. And, yeah. and you know, it is interesting, right? Because I think that, you know, a lot of what you said and the reason why for OPM is that you have to get your business to a certain point yeah. in order to qualify. Yeah. Yeah. Is And, you know, obviously you came up with a, a new concept, etc. But you had built businesses to yeah. a certain point. Yeah. And, you know, they actually... I'm going to disagree with you Uh, in a a little way of, you know, if you overthink your business plan before you get started, you're never going to hit the
0: ground. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. You know? I totally get that. But it
1: is. It's after a certain point. You've seen success. Yeah. Now, okay, what's next? How do you take that company and scale it? Yeah. And get past what made you initially successful to then have repeatable Process mm-hmm. to grow the business. Because I totally agree. anyone who's listening to this, it's like, oh my God, I have to have a bulletproof strategy <laughs> to start a company. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Like, that yeah, is, you know, it's to your, to our, the biggest discussion point of like trial and error. And, you yeah. know, and I think a lot of the companies that we've seen through Harvard and key studies and everything and just looking around is also knowing when to give up right? Like yeah. when your baby is ugly and... When the dog
0: don't hunt no more. When the more. Do- dog <laughs> don't Shoot hunt. the dog. The yeah, dog
1: exactly. Hunt no <laughs> and it, the innovation, right? And uh, the examples with AT&T. And, yeah. you know, I think that's a very famous Harvard uh, where you know, all the innovations that AT&T was going to come out with, and yeah. they never did. Yeah. And they're all out there in the world. <laughs> and I know Apple and the other companies didn't take them from that. So, yeah. you know, Basically, you know, you started four lines of business within World of Dreams. Yeah, you have the television network, mm-hmm. you have the platform. Yeah, you have what are the the studios? The studios. Yep.
0: And then the city the city development, the smart city structures uh, with our satellite studios.
1: Okay, yeah. got it. And this was, you know, and the main uh, idea, I think, behind it when you decided to create these four different businesses was the content creation. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so for I know what the content creation is, but it would be helpful for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, more and more, you know, as we studied what was happening, we researched what was going on in our industry and we saw the continued decline, we started to really sort of put it together that we need to find out why millennials, why Gen Z are not following the trends. Why are they not jumping on board with the traditional entertainment flow of demographic moving in to fill these viewer voids? And so we did research. We did about 20,000 millennials, Gen Z, and we asked them very basic questions. You You know, how are you watching your content? Why are you watching your content this way? And, you know, on and on and on. And it was so incredible what we learned from those forums, from that research, from that dialogue. And, you know, I came back to my team and I said, basically, look, I have learned more from talking to these people than I have at any other point in my career in this industry about what's going on with people, what's going on with how they're watching, why they're watching and all these different things. And I then said, what if that becomes the premise for how we create our content? And they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I was like, why don't we create a technological platform that allows our content creators to communicate with our viewers and customers? And I started using that term customers because I started looking at the problem of declining viewership as a customer service issue. Mm. If you are not coming back, And as a customer, you're not happy. And so that became sort of this whole idea around what became known today as the People's Network. That is the technological platform by which we create our content, where people, our content creators... We'll put our ideas in various forms, entertaining campaigns, if you will. They're campaigns and they're fun based upon, you know, the demographics that they're going after, the demographics that they would like to have be a part of it. It could be in the form of a scissor reel or uh, a short pilot or or just a synopsis, but these varying things will engage our viewers, our customers, and the, the content creators are able to give their their feedback, get their feedback from it, and then they take it and they further develop the concept and they further develop the material, and then they come back and in within it, there are all of these cool rooms: their producers' rooms, their writer rooms, their directors' room, and the customers can go inside of these rooms and see what's going on with their content, and it's like. When we tested this with millennials and Gen Z, they were like, this is fantastic. Right. Like, You're giving us a voice. You're giving us a say in what we see. This is so cool. We want this. We want to be a part of that. And, and it was so overwhelmingly successful that we were just like, why in the world has no one done this? Why has no one done this? Because it's not rocket science. Right. But we're simply, we created a way for us to have communication with the people who are watching the content. That's a simple innovation.
1: You think about the cost savings associated with, you know, the, I don't know what goes into it, but I imagine you're kind of like cutting out a lot of the wasted work, time, production, et cetera. Like a pilot. Exactly. Like a
0: pilot, because we eliminate the need to do pilots now. Because pilots, as great as they are, they may never see the light of day. And then a network or a studio spends millions of dollars on these pilots that don't go anywhere. That's money burned. That's money wasted. But also, the genius of what we've done within the platform is that we've created advertising mechanisms within the development portals. Oh yeah. So even when people are looking at the content for development, we're making revenue and off of that. You're able yeah. to monetize the <laughs>
1: Absolutely. process Absolutely. that you were never. That was all just sunk cost before, and yes. now it's a revenue generator. That's yes. that's really interesting. Yeah. So you know.
0: rewriting the the, the model.
1: So how much content has been created at this point? Now this is a great question
0: <laughs> because all I'm, of this happened last year as we were getting ready to make this big shift into that process. COVID-19 happened and everything shut down in Hollywood. So right? so that put a a big damper on the whole content play um including the investments that came in with that portion of the development piece. Um so what ended up happening We had to pivot and we had to find and turn other parts of the business and move those things forward. Now that we're now moving into 2021, we're now, again, having the conversation. Yes, 2021. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And we're now talking about content once again. And actually, we are right now in pre-production on our first piece of content. And it's actually called A Better World Project. And when COVID happened, everything slowed down. The world stopped. And it actually caused...
1: Would have been nice, by the way, to have some of that content out there. Yeah,
0: it would be right now. (laughs) It would be. But you know what? I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm actually glad we didn't because it gave us time to learn some more things about the market, some more things about our customers and our viewers, their habits, and sort of how they're seeing the world right now. And because there's a big change that just took place. And you have to be aware of those things, especially if you're in the space of content creation, because there were some platforms that launched during this time and they're already gone. They didn't make it. What happened? I don't want to say okay. names. No, no, I feel no, no, no. bad. No, but like well, well, without well,
1: naming names, like well, in your opinion, what yeah. happened to those companies that launched during You this know,
0: time? I feel like they missed. I feel like that literally a transition happened during this space and time and with them trying to launch in the middle of a transition and having sort of their model already set in stone that in order to capture the transition I think they didn't have an audience going into it Mm -hmm. and so it made it more difficult for them to build an audience in an already very swiftly changing climate yeah yeah so I think that's what happened
1: And so now, you know, you guys are moving forward. Yes, the Better better World world Project. Project, The Better World
0: Project. And it's actually, uh, when I talked about how the world stopped, and and you're familiar with the different stories, the different things that happened with Ahmaud Arbery, with George Floyd, with Breonna Taylor, and there's so many others, and we're getting daily, we get get updates on the different things that are still taking place um, in the world. And what happened, people actually, I think, the conversations that we've been having in black communities for a long time, I think the rest of the world stopped and was able to see, oh my gosh, there is something wrong. There is something not quite right. And I think it was sort of an awakening that sort of hit the country and that hit the rest of the world. And with that, a lot of turmoil, a lot of uprising, a lot of upheaval, a lot of discord, a lot of racial divide and, within our country even. And as we were talking, one of the things that I've always said is that, you know, entertainment, the whole programming industry, we're responsible for creating something to bring people together. And with all the dividing voices that were out there, I really started talking to my team about creating something that brings the world together, that brings our country together. And A Better World Project, the, the focus of it is about ending racism. And I know that it's, it's so crazy to say ending something, you know, but you have to set a goal. It's
1: truly visionary.
0: Yeah, it's truly visionary. You have to set a goal and you have to set an objective to actually accomplish. And initially, we were going to just sort of focus on it in the space of just using music. But the more we talked about it, the more we realized we needed to bring every sector of industry together together. To tackle this, because the issue of racism has been institutionalized. So it's moved within every sector of society. I had the pleasure of being a part of uh, Harvard Business School alumni uh, race relations committee. And we had a Zoom session several months back, and there were 2,500 CEOs from around the country who had all graduated from HBS. And on that call, Uh, was the Harvard Business School administration, some of the key figures within the administration and the faculty, and Black students at Harvard and Harvard Business School. And they let us talk, and they didn't say anything. No one said, oh, no, no, you can't feel that way, or no, 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 that can't happen, or that's not true. And it was the first time I I got, I mean, I think a lot of us, we got emotional. We, like we were crying on this Zoom session because there was no one back saying to us, no, you can't feel that way. That can't be your experience. And I'll remember Dean Nitton, he got on after all of that, everything that transpired. And he said, there's some responsibility that we, Harvard Business School, has to take place in this. He said, out of the 2,500 CEOs that are on this call, we could not find five black people represented in a fortune 500 or a fortune 100 company in all of the years of this top school in the world we couldn't find five black people from this school to represent on this session and at the end of that session all 2500 of those ceos agreed to sign a petition to begin to implement policies to eradicate inequality that takes place in these corporate settings and I mean it was one of the most moving things I had ever seen and been a part and I took that and I, and I realized we have to involve every sector of our society to really address this and so that's what we did and right now we partnered with um, the National Association of Student Councils. And now that's a student, high school, middle school student organization, actually, which I was a part of uh, when I, when I was also in high most school. I was, as well. <laughs> I was our student body president. I was, and I was voted most talented in my high school. But I was a part of that organization. And I felt because one of the things that that organization does is it allows the students to, to do projects. And I thought, well, how cool would it be if I could get them engaged? you know, and taking this project on to literally help us. Because, I mean, our research shows, McKinsey shows, Harvard Business School shows that uh Gen Z, they are such an influential generation. Mm-hmm. And, and they're able to influence like no other generation has been able to do. And they influence brands, they influence buying power, all these different things. And so part of our strategy was in going into this, we have to sort of remove the stigma. We have to take this tough subject, this tough topic, this taboo thing, and we have to sort of make it a safe place for people to come. And what we have the Student Council working on right now, the National Association, is they're actually working on coming up with a Better World Challenge. And they're going to engage millions of high school students around the country. And then they're going to take, the high school students are going to take that and they're going to engage the rest of the country as well as the rest of the world with this particular challenge. And the thing about it, what has been so great about it is sponsors have, they've been, they're loving this because the demographics that they're looking to go after are involved in leading this thing off, you know? So it's sort of, it it made it safe for them to come in and say, oh my gosh, yeah, we can jump in. We can be a part of this. And it's sort of a movement now. And we have all of these different pieces with celebrities and pro athletes and singers, artists, uh, corporations are now coming together to help us, I mean, I feel like if we're going to do a project, if it's going to be our first project, it needs to be something that makes a difference in this world. And I Absolutely. think right now, this is the most relevant thing that we could possibly do in uniting this country and uniting our world.
1: Oh, it's so amazing! Yeah, yeah, I, I can't wait to to watch.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and um, so for everybody listening, yeah, you know, this is. Breaking ground. yes. Yeah. In the process of breaking ground. Yes. You're doing a lot of media stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Obviously, you know, better <laughs> publications than this. Oh, but, come you know, on. I know. you kidding me. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so, you're doing a lot of media. Now, when will... Because part of the the platform and the process is watching the process. Yes. So, I imagine the turnaround for when people can actually start watching, isn't that far in the distance? It's not
0: you're far. In the, it's not okay. too far in the distance. You talk about other publications. I just recently did an interview with Newsweek. Nice. And so that sort of outlines a little bit about sort of the, the the criteria and what's going to be happening. So in February, you're going to start seeing some of the activity around what the student councils have been working on and the different videos and the promotional things. And I have some really cool secrets. I can't tell today yeah. because Newsweek, ha- they're my media partner, so right. they get first dibs on it. Yep. But I'll give you second dibs on it and I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs>
1: so, what, once, so. that, once it gets released, we'll put yeah. it out there to the world. Yeah. And- Yeah, but that, I mean, it's it's just really exciting. And I I think it starts young, right? And, you know, I talked to you about build, right? You know, teaching these kids entrepreneurial skills. And this is just taking it, you know, a a whole step further. And um, that's great. So, one other interesting thing (laughs) I saw, and I'm like, what
0: is this guy (laughs) not
1: going to do? How on earth did you start
0: a shoe? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I named the company World of Dreams for a reason, you know, because there's so many different things that, first of all, understanding sort of the mission of our company. It really is to help people sort of take off the limitations, help them take off the restraints that are keeping them from realizing their full potential, keeping them from realizing their dreams. And when you start looking at that, there are a lot of ways that you can do that. And you know, part of why we do it in the entertainment space and we use the people to help us create content, I always see it as almost like a visual exercise to teach people how to dream. If they can see in that process of helping us put that content together, how something goes from a vision to reality. It's subconscious, but I think... It will actually help people begin to see, this is how I can get that thing that's inside of me out and into the world. I always tell people, everything that you see first started in someone's mind. Everything that you see, Mm -hmm. it started in someone's mind. And if they can do it, why not you? I think we're giving people the tools to actually learn how to make their dreams become a reality. We have this other segment of our company called Dream Builders. You know, it's easy to dream. It's another thing to build it. You know, that takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of stamina, <laughs> but it's possible. And we, we created this shoe line. We actually already had it in the, in the business plan, but we rolled it forward because it was one of those things that, that we felt we could still do during this time, right. during this time, because it doesn't involve, you know, production. It doesn't involve, you know, being in front of people, those sort of things. So, you know, we felt like the timing was right uh, to Actually, launch and introduce the World of Dream shoe line. And um, basically, the designs are, are inspired by cities all over the world. And the first launch Dubai. that we're doing, Dubai. Uh, because, and I'll, I'll tell you why okay. Dubai was so instrumental for me in taking off the restraints, taking off the limitations. My first trip over there, I had a very unique opportunity to sit with some of the members of the royal family. And they basically told me how. Dubai came to be. And this whole mindset of really just dreaming and thinking outside of the box and whatever ideas that they came up with, no one ever said this can't be done or there's not enough money to do it or any. The question on the table was, how do we make this happen? And I thought, oh my gosh, like if I could take this this mindset back to my team, like, I mean, our Western culture is so different. Yeah, these are yes (laughs) people. I know, I know. It's like, like, you know, you think about it. I mean, you think about our Western culture and the first thing, whenever you present an idea, the the first thing that comes to money, the holds (laughs) and we don't, money is always the first one. There's not not enough money. We we don't have enough money to do this. Where are we going to get the money to do this? And that was never, ever, that wasn't a part of the conversation. And I think a lot of times when we're setting out to accomplish these things, I think we start limiting ourselves even before we step out. We start we start pulling. I mean, I know I did. I mean, I started, you know, well, we're not going to do that because that costs too much. Well, we're not going to do this. That costs too much. And this is not going to happen because that costs too much. And I literally had to go back And sit and think, how in the world are you going to call your company World of Dreams? And you're literally picking your dreams apart and saying, you're casting this off and pulling this out. And the crazy thing about it is, even with this pandemic, the way that we've been continuing to sort of thrive through this process, when the funding in one source cut off, in one place cut off, opportunities opened up for us to continue doing it in another way. Yep. And that's the art of dream building. That's, the, that's what you have to be able to do is look at a situation and not say, ah, that's not going to work. But is there another way for it to work? Can we do this instead? You know, we had this whole big commercial development piece that was supposed to take place and the funding source cut off. Well, one of my board members said, hey, look, there's an opportunity for World of Dreams here to do this uh, in this commercial development piece. Maybe you can build one of your satellite studios there. They love the idea We ended up getting that deal. And then the head guy goes, hey, I like World of Dreams. I have another development here. You guys want to build one over here? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, hey, why don't you become a partner in this firm? Yeah. What? (laughs) What? Okay. Okay. So we were able to take all of those commercial development pieces that were no longer going to get that funding source because of the pandemic, yeah. we were able to roll those projects over into that other company so that the process continues on. Yeah. So there's always a way. It's the willingness to get out there and see what the where the opportunities are and you have to have this tenacity and this willingness just to push past yeah. and to keep pushing past and if you do that, nothing can stop you. You know? So there you go. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <I'm> like, <laughs> a great way to end the conversation. It's so true. <laughs> and so great to see you. It's great to see and you, Carolyn. Thank you so really much is. for joining me today.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Growth Unscripted is powered by bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, BETS connects the most extraordinary go to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at betsrecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies.